It's great to see you again tonight. Thanks for uh, turning up for this teaching. I've enjoyed so much teaching on the grace of God. It's a theme that uh, has been, for me, life-changing. I, I honestly believe I was trying very hard to be a zealous Christian for some years and uh, trying to tick all the boxes and do all the right things. Uh, but in God's mercy, when the grace of God was revealed to me, I, that seems a big word to use, doesn't it? Revealed to me. But it did come like a revelation uh, that was so setting free. And it's been wonderful to share that message around. And so I'm grateful for being invited to spend these three evenings. I was invited to uh, speak at the Assemblies of God in France uh, last year, or was it earlier this year actually? Uh, five sessions uh, on the grace of God. And uh, it's really fun to work at it and work at it and work at it. And I think it's right what Brian said about the book, because there will be questions that will come to mind that, uh, you say, well, what about this? Well, what are the implications of that? And uh, because it's, if it's fresh to you, it's very radical. And it seems to pull the rug from sometimes uh, thoughts we've had, uh, attitudes we've had. And uh, you'll find as you work through the book, yeah, the answers come. Even the, the last half of Romans 7, which sometimes ties people in knots, there's a whole chapter on that and so on. Grace for the future, etc. So I just want to underline how valuable it is simply to really work through it. And also I would say this, that people will say, I, I just need to have it preached to me again. I need to have it preached to me again. Uh, I had the privilege of speaking at a conference some years ago uh, when John Wimber was present and uh, he said to me, I put it on my car, I played it incessantly. I just need to keep on hearing it uh, uh, to set me free uh, from it, uh, the pressure I was getting myself into. And it's funny, I was in his uh, office one day, he introduced me to his secretary, then he said afterwards, he said, she's an incredibly hard worker, she's magnificent. He said, I must tell her about grace one day, but not yet. <laughs> He's an outrageous guy. I want to read with you from Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Once again, I'm reading from the NASB, so maybe here and there one or two words may differ, but won't be very significant differences. We're just reading a few verses. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your presence with us, your commitment. I am with you all the days. We thank you that you love cleansing us through the washing of the water of the word. We thank you for the power of the scriptures to set us free. And Lord, you know, we have our minds battered with all kinds of half-truths and untruths. 
day by day in the world. So we want so much, Lord, to bring our minds to you. We say, Holy Spirit, would you please come? Would you wash away wrong thinking? Would you renew us? Would you inspire us? I ask, Father, in the name of Jesus, that every one of us will hear the voice of God in our hearts tonight. And really know this is my heavenly Father speaking to me. And that, Lord, it might result in our being so much more fruitful for you. We might bring you much more glory because we gave attention to your word together. So, Father, please inspire us, motivate, and teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the package on grace, really, in three evenings, we saw on the first evening that, yes, God is prepared to declare us righteous simply through our relationship with Jesus, through our faith in him, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He gives us righteousness as a gift. He sets us free from trying to keep the law in order to please him. He's made us thoroughly acceptable. And we saw that has all kinds of ramifications. It raised the question too, well, what about sinning then? What about, can you just carry on sinning? If God's prepared to say you're righteous anyway, what's the deal? And so we looked at that last evening, looked carefully at the teaching through Romans 6. I think another question that arises, which is what we're looking at tonight, if God's prepared to say we're righteous anyway, do we need to serve him? Because so often our Christian works can be a kind of compensation that we don't feel we're doing very well, and so we get involved in activity. So what is the relationship between Christian activity and the message of grace? That's what we're looking at tonight, and here we're told that the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works. Now many of us who are uh, from a Christian evangelical position, we say we're not into dead religion. We don't go there. You know, we, we don't, we're not lighting candles in here tonight. We're not in front of statues. We're not into external uh, Christianity. But to be honest, we need to be a little bit more uh, self-critical, look at it a little more carefully, because I know, for instance, in the UK, there are probably thousands of church buildings that are no longer uh, operating as churches. I would think it must be thousands And you look at the architecture, it's a library now, uh, or it's a museum, or even a mosque, and you think, oh, that used to be a church. That used to be a church. And churches have closed down all over the country, and that doesn't happen overnight. A church isn't kind of alive one day and dead the next. So death kind of creeps in. We used to have a small tree in our garden, and it caught some sort of disease, and that was most visible, first of all, at the ends of the branches, And gradually, it just came through and killed the whole thing off. And death can kind of creep in. And so we need to be on our guard and not say, oh, we're not into dead religion. We need to be careful. And so let's just say, what what are dead works? If our conscience is to be cleansed from them, or elsewhere it says in Hebrews 6, repent from dead works, what are they? Well, let me just uh, give some perhaps obvious answers. First of all, a dead work is a work that doesn't, have faith in it. You could even uh, plan uh, for days like this. And so we're going to have a conference. But what is your hope? What is your expectation? 
what did you anticipate might happen? What are you reaching for? Uh, a faith really changes activity into expectation. So when we come week by week, Sunday by Sunday here, it's so important that we are coming with faith. We're coming expecting God to work. Not because, well, what do you do Sunday? You always go. It's possible to just make routine becomes your motivation. You just do it because you do it. And that can happen so subtly that you start enthusiastically. As time slips by, you do it well because you do it. And you don't even ask questions. Sadly, that can happen very often in a traditional kind of church. Why do we do this meeting? I don't know why we've always done this meeting. What happens as a result of it? Well, not, not much, but we always do it. There was a lady in our church, and uh, uh, she, she asked her mother one day, why is it when you do the Sunday roast, which is a kind of typical thing in the UK, you have a large uh, roast, it goes in the oven, and that's the big event of the Sunday. And she said, why is it, mother, that you always cut off the two ends of the roast and put them on top? Why do you put those two pieces of meat on the top? Why do you do that? And her mother said, I, I, you know, I don't honestly know. Uh, I, I, I think maybe it makes the juices flow more freely. Uh, grandma always did it. I've always done it. I, I don't actually know. But grandma's coming at the weekend. Ask grandma. Uh, and so that weekend, grandma turns up and the girl says, Grandma, why is it when you cut, cook the Sunday roast, you always cut these ends off and put it on the top? And grandma said, you still do that? And she said, yeah, but why do we do it? And she said, well, I always did it because the oven was so small. It was the only way I could get the meat in the oven. So the reason for doing it was long gone. But they just kept doing it. And it's possible for a church that's been around for a while just to do stuff. We always had that meeting. We always do that. Why? Well, because we do. Where's the faith? Faith? We never thought of faith. And so it can just kind of creep in. You just do it because you do it. A work which is not in faith, actually, is the beginning of a dead work. Or let's say maybe a work without hope. I love the story, don't you, of uh, when Jonathan and his armor bearer went out to fight. And uh, it says, as they went, uh, Jonathan said, perhaps the Lord will act. They were very outnumbered. It was just two of them going against uh, many soldiers. And it, was, it wasn't like they had fully formed faith. It wasn't like, hey, we're coming to the meeting. We're expecting 17 people to be saved. We know the number. They didn't know what was going to happen. But at least they, they understood God is with us. All things are possible. And they took their, their perhaps faith into the battle. They took their hope with them. So we, we must at least have hope, expectation. God will work. When you lose that edge, what might God do this week? We're in trouble. We need to be coming to, well, maybe God will break through. That, at least hope, faith, hope. Another work that I want to suggest to you is presumptuous work. What do I mean? Well, perhaps again, it's best illustrated when you think of the way in which the Israelites fought at Jericho. You know, they're outnumbered in terms of the, the, the scale of this building. It says it's walled up to heaven. And, and you think, how on earth do we take this? And, and I love that phrase in Hebrews 11. It just says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. 
Uh, it's just a tremendous statement. Of course, but it was with real dependence on God. They walked around it. They're looking to God. Uh, they don't look very military. They look kind of crazy, strolling around and around. And yet they're saying, Lord, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. And then comes the moment. Shout! And they shout. And the walls come. What a victory. And, you know, that, that's outstanding. And then the next thing is, well, what do we do next? Oh, there's another village, another town. Send some guys down and look. And some guys go down, and they come back. Say, ah, it's nowhere near as big as Jericho. We can handle this. In that moment, they stepped out of faith into presumption. At Jericho, they're depending on God. Lord, you've got to do this. Then they have a great victory. They say, oh, we can handle this. It's like, okay, God, thank you. We can handle it now. That becomes a dead work. When it's just easy, it's in your control, we can handle this, you just cut off that nerve of dependence, of God's involvement with you. When you think, we can do this, we're not very dependent, we don't need God almost. They really came unstuck. They lost their second battle in the land. First battle, great victory. Second battle, terrible, shameful loss. Because they quickly moved from a living thing to a dead thing. Presumption. Another thing I would say is a dead work is a, a work that's not commanded by God. It's possible for us to do things that God hasn't commissioned us to do. After the resurrection even, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. He wasn't commanded to. In fact, earlier in the story we read, he left his nets to follow Jesus. But, well, he's going fishing. And it says he fished all night and caught nothing. He was uncommissioned. He hadn't been told to do it. Again, I remember when I was a, a young pastor uh, in a town not far from the town I was raised in. And when I was in school, in my last years at school, I, I became a Christian in, with about two years to go. But I was terribly backslidden from the beginning. I was no witness at all. Really shameful, to be honest. And... Uh, when I later became a pastor, some years later, my old school heard about it. And I was only about 20 miles away in another town. And they called me and said, look, we need someone to teach religious instruction right through the school. Would you come in one day a week and teach uh, the whole school, uh, which was a senior school for boys, religion? I thought, boy, what an open door. And I was so excited about it. I thought, I can put right what I did so badly before. I can, I can really maybe uh, just serve the Lord and turn the light on in that school. Boy, what an opportunity. I was so excited about it. And you know, the funny thing is, I'm praying about it and saying, Lord, thank you for this opening. And you know, sometimes when you pray, you're thinking, I'm not getting any answer. You know, it's no, there's no kind of, yeah, I'm coming back from heaven. It's like, you're not interested in this, Lord, you know? And I'm praying about this. Thank you, Lord, for this open door. And uh, I just feel, and then I felt God said to me, what did I call you to do? And I said, well, we'll pastor this work. And this tremendous door over here. And, and I felt God said, I didn't call you to do that. But it's an open door. It's an opportunity. And I really had to hear God say, I didn't call you. In the end, I, I, I phoned a friend who was actually a Youth for Christ evangelist, friend of mine, and he followed it through, and it, someone else did it. And do you know, it wasn't for me. That's important. You can get yourself pulled into, and sometimes people get pulled into all sorts of things. 
Because well, the door's open. It's an opportunity. We can't miss the opportunity. And you can actually get your life so busy because, well, there's an opportunity and someone should do that. And over there. And you say, have you got faith for it? I haven't got time for faith. I'm just going through. <laughs> and we just get busy doing stuff because, well, it's there and somebody should do it. And I'm so grateful to God that I learned that lesson, to be honest, very early on. Very early on, I thought God said, no, look. And it was, to be honest, soon after that, that God began to call me beyond our local church into works, planting other churches, and visiting. And a whole new thing began to open up from God. And had I been committed to this school for a year or two, once a week, every week, I would have been absolutely tied up. I'm so glad God just made it clear No, I'm not actually in that. It looks good, but it's not for you. We need to be careful. We don't get into dead works. And lastly, a dead work is a work that's not motivated by love. 1 Corinthians 13 is a pretty scary chapter, really. It's a very beautiful chapter about love. But it says you can have faith to remove mountains. But if you don't have love, it's nothing. It says you can understand all mysteries. It says you can give all your money, all your money to the poor. But if it's without love, it's nothing. Man, I just gave all my money. And then it's just written off. It's nothing. It profits nothing. And so it's possible to be actively busy and it's not counting. It's dead. It's interesting to compare and contrast what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, and what Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus at the beginning of the book of Revelation. So Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, he says, I know your labor of love, your work of faith, the steadfastness of your hope. Tremendous phrases describing this church. He's always very proud of this church. Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your labor, I know your work, I know your steadfastness. It's interesting, it's got a kind of hollow ring because, yeah, we're working, we're laboring, we're steadfast, but it's not labor of love. It's not work of faith. It's not steadfastness rooted in hope. The phrases are all cut. No, I know your labor. I know your work. I know you're steadfast. And then it says these frightening words. If you don't come back to the love you had at first. I'll take your lampstand away. Because the outward activity's there, but the heart's gone. And actually, Jesus kind of threatens them with closure. I will take away your lampstand. I mean, that's, that's an extraordinary thing that Jesus would say that to a church. I'd hate to be the pastor of a church where Jesus has taken away the lampstand. So, well, isn't it the devil who does that? Well, I don't know the Bible says that. It says Jesus, who's head of the church, has full authority to take away the lampstand. Whatever that means, it's a frightening statement. So he says, repent, come back to the love you had at first. Because you've lost it. You're busy, but you've lost it. That's a hard thing, to be busy, but you've lost the heart. It's gone. Sad, sad thing. And you can keep going. I guess, you know, it says about King Saul in the Old Testament, God said to him, today the kingdom is taken from you. Samuel brought that prophetic word to King Saul. Today the kingdom is removed from you. 
Does that mean he couldn't get into the palace the next day? No, he got in. In fact, he looked like king for a few years. But God said, today, it's all over. And he just kept going. Meanwhile, David's beginning to emerge. Here he's saying, I'll take your lampstand away, and I think you can probably keep church going for a while after the lampstand's gone. But be careful, repent from, don't get involved in dead works, things that really are not appropriate. So it's not just about externalism as we might say, oh, it's external religion, you know, lighting candles and all that. We don't do that. Hey, we can be doing that because our heart is not right. So dead works are scary things. And really, I just need to ask this question, why? Why do Christians get involved in dead religion? Why do we do it? Well, I think the key is in the verse. It says, the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works. I want to suggest to you that sometimes we are doing dead works out of a bad conscience. If we're not doing it from faith, if we're not doing it from love, if we're not doing it from some hope, we're not doing it because we feel God's in it, why do we do it? Well, often we do it because, well, you just need to keep your conscience going. Maybe your conscience before somebody else, or maybe your conscience before God. So then someone says, will you do this? You think, oh, if I don't do it, what will they think of me? We need somebody to help with this. Will you help? Oh, okay. Is your heart in it? Not really. Why are you doing it? Well, what would they think of me if I didn't do it? And to be honest, sometimes when grace has not been taught in a church, you can have a whole church that is manipulated by guilt. You, you have to do it because the, the guy is constantly bullying you or bringing pressure, manipulating. So people are very, very busy because, well, I would be in his bad books or what will the others think of me if I don't? I'm not pulling my weight. I've got to do it. Or even before God. What will God think of me if I don't do it? And so I want to say that's conscience work. You do it to just keep your conscience. And sometimes if we've not done very well or we've not got a very high opinion of ourselves, we've never understood grace. You can find some people who've never understood grace. They're the busiest people in the church because they're just trying to get rid of guilt by doing more. So you feel maybe God's, or Satan may be accusing you of things. You say, oh yeah, you accused me of that, but look how hard I'm working. I'm trying to get rid of this by working hard. But the grace of God teaches us that's not how it is. And that's what we're talking about this week, the grace of God. And so it says in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, to one who doesn't work, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly. I mean, it's outrageous. He, he justifies the ungodly. His faith is regarded as righteousness. That's one of the most radical statements of grace in the Bible. So the one who doesn't work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is regarded as righteousness. And so when there's pressure to do conscience work, you don't have to do it. You're free. You're righteous as a gift. I remember again when I was in this church I mentioned earlier as a young pastor. For a while, we were ever so introspective because why? Well, we were a formal traditional church. I'd been filled with the Spirit. 
I, I told them when they invited me to be the pastor, if I come, I want it to be a spirit-filled church. And they said, okay, whatever that means. I said, no, no, I believe in this. <laughs> and and they, 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 they said, we've heard you preach. You keep preaching the Bible the way you do. We love the way you preach the Bible. And we'll follow you. Show us the Bible. Uh, we'll follow you. And uh, that was easily said. Uh, and, and gradually I had the joy of laying hands on people. They got filled with the Spirit. And others got filled with the Spirit. And gradually more and more people were getting filled with the Spirit. And some were saying, we've never seen this. What's going on here? And uh, we're into all kinds of, what was going on? There's a lot of pressure. And to be honest, it took all my energies to help bring this church through from being that to becoming this. And uh, there came a time when we were kind of through. I'm not saying we were perfect. You won't be surprised to hear that. We weren't a perfect church, but to be honest, we'd come through and we were happy in God for what he was doing with us, beginning to kind of export this new kind of church life in a healthy way. And I felt God said to me, you should be in more fellowship with the other churches in the town because we hadn't had much time for that. And so I went to the local minister's fraternal and said, you know, can I come? And they said, oh, sure, come on in. You're welcome. They're very warm and friendly. And I started attending. And very shortly after that, a guy came to my door and said, I, I hear your church is coming into the kind of fellowship of churches more in the town. And I said, yeah, that's right. He said, I'm so pleased. He said, next week, all the churches will be taking envelopes and putting them in the uh, doors of every house in the town, uh, asking for their money. And then the following week, we go and knock the door and ask for them uh, to give us their filled envelopes. That's from all the pagans all over the town. And, uh, and uh, he said, uh, I'm so glad you're coming in so you can take part in that. And I said, uh, no, I don't think we're going to do that. I, I don't think, that, no, we won't do that. And he said, uh, you said you were coming in with all the churches. All the churches will be doing it. And I said, well, I don't, think, I don't think we will. He said, even the Roman Catholics join in. It's like, turn the screw, you know. And what, what was he trying to do? He's trying to get at my conscience. He's trying to make me feel bad about myself. That What will they think of us if we're the only church who don't get involved? Oh, that exclusive group, they don't get... He's trying to trouble my conscience so that I do it. But happily, I already understood the grace of God, and I understood this. To one who doesn't work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is regarded as righteousness. So I said, no, and in my heart I said, and I'm still righteous, thank you. <laughs> now, that, that just needs to invade our church life. And this is a bit scary, this is where sometimes the elders can get a bit scared. Because sometimes you are free to say, no, and I'm still righteous. Would you help with the kids' work? Kids, I hate them. No, and I'm still righteous. <laughs> Would you, can you help set up the chairs? No, I'm not really good at chairs. No, and I'm still righteous. Hallelujah. <laughs> and so this is where, this is where I said, Brian says, stop now, leave. <laughs> I'll be doing all the children's work and the chairs and everything. No, but we just need to know that righteousness is not through all this work. And if we understand that my conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, so you don't get into conscience work. 
Do you know it's possible for a whole church and all the workers are conscience-driven? The whole gang. Why do you do it? Oh, they want me to do it. Why do you do it? Oh, someone has to do it. Why are you working the kids? I hate kids. You think, think, where's the fruit here? Because what's going on? A lot of people doing things because what will they think of me if I don't? And so I'm just going to say, listen, we're righteous as a gift. You don't have to do it. Is that the end of the story? Well, not quite. Not quite the end of the story. So, you know, are we called just to sit around? You know, hallelujah, I'm saved. Praise God. I'm glad Brian's doing all the work here. Well, let's just look at some other verses. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, famous verse, says this. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Right? That's a famous verse. Jesus died. The end product he's looking for is a people for himself who are zealous to do good works. Another one. Matthew that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's adding another dimension. It brings glory to God to see our good works. A third one. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. The night is coming when no man can work. A night, there's a cut-off point. You must work while the chance is there, while it's day. Night's coming. Then you won't have any more opportunity. So there's an urgent note. And then one more, Revelation 22:12. I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. So that's bringing the total end of the story. Jesus is coming to reward our work. So let's see what the verse says. It says, the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works in order that what? We might serve the living God. He wants us to serve him. And that's why it's so important that we identify what is a dead work and have nothing to do with it, not so that we can sit around the place, but so that we can actually serve the living God. It cuts us loose from religion, stuff we're not meant to do, things that we haven't got a heart for, things we got bullied into, manipulated into, not so that we can sit around, but we can find the thing God wants us to do. We bring him glory. We do things that are fruitful because they're actually the things God's given us to do. We're serving the living God. It's hugely important we get this right. And we don't want to get cluttered up with. You see, that was my danger in going to that school. I could do this. I, I had a guilty conscience about how I used to be at that school. Maybe I could turn it right by going back to that school. If I'd got cluttered with that and God began to call me somewhat apostolically, to, I, would have been, I could have said, I can't go. I'm at the school every week. You get taken up with things that God didn't tell you to do. Be careful. We have to serve the living God. God wants us to serve him. And that last note is quite a telling one. Uh, he says, I'm coming quickly. This is virtually the last statement of your whole Bible. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. He's going to reward us for not just what we've believed, but for what we've done. I wonder if you think much about rewards. It's not something we often talk about. 
And we need to be very careful here. We're talking about grace and freedom. We're also talking about rewards. Probably the best teaching on this theme is in 1 Corinthians 3. At least it's ever such a clear little passage. You might like to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll look at a few verses where it says this. Paul says, as a wise master builder, in verse 10, I laid a foundation. Then it says you need to build upon that foundation and tells us the various different styles of building that we can be involved in. And he says in verse 12, for instance, now if any man builds, that's 1 Corinthians 3, 12, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's going to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which is built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire, or NIV has as one escaping through the flames. You'll be saved because salvation isn't by works. We're not talking about salvation here. You're already saved, but your works are going to be tested. All right, so Jesus has given every one of us a spanking white sheet, a cloth, a cloak. We are covered in his righteousness. We're perfect, spotless. We're justified freely. We're now his. And then he says, I want you to serve me. And then we have the joy of serving him. And then when we've run our course and meet him face to face, he wants to reward us for the things we've done, having been saved. We don't get saved by works. That's very clear. The Bible's very clear. Not of works. It's by grace you are saved. You are given a a clean sheet before a holy God. There is no word against you. Hallelujah. But then he says, now I want you to serve me. We're invited to serve him. And then at the end, it's the works that will be tested. And, And it says we will find whether our work was gold or silver or straw. And it will be tested by a fire test. And it says when the fire tests it, the reality will be revealed. In fact, elsewhere it says we will all appear before God. And when it says appear, it doesn't mean, did you see so-and-so at the meeting? Oh yeah, they put in an appearance. I think they were there. It doesn't mean that. It means in that day, who you are and who I am will become manifest. God, we will appear. You and I will, it'll be clear who we are. We will appear before him. We will be revealed for who we are. Our works will be tested by fire. And it says some will suffer loss. Though they're saved, it's quite plain, it says so, they're saved. We're not saved by works, but you suffer loss. Others will be rewarded. It's a bit like when Jesus was at the temple and the rich guy comes in, it says, and Jesus sat opposite there and uh, he took out his big offering and uh, he's just kind of pouring it in and looking around and I'm just generous, that's the way I am. And uh, <laughs> he's, he's making sure people notice and, uh, and then the little widow comes along and uh, she's also looking around but hoping no one will see and just putting in 
two coins, but it's all she's got. And Jesus gives us an example of what it's going to be like in that day. It's almost like he says, let the fire fall. And when the smoke lifts, you think, where's that guy's gift? It's, it's straw, it's gone. But it looks so impressive. No, it's nothing. Now let the fire fall on that woman's gift. It's got, wow, what a look at that. Gold, precious gems. See, there's going to come a test. That's what the Bible says. It says, some will suffer loss. It also says here, wipe away all tears. You wonder, what what are the tears about? Well, some will suffer loss. But some will be rewarded. See, we don't don't often think about rewards, do we? And I would suggest, because it's quite serious, I'm not saying we should be continually preoccupied with it, but nor should we be indifferent. Nor should we allow kind of fragments of thought to build together almost a theology that says... It's not even there. And I I want to suggest there are a few things that happen to us so that, for instance, we might say to somebody, you played the keyboard beautifully tonight. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. And what happens sometimes is when you applaud someone or thank them, the the answer sometimes comes back, oh, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. Have you heard that? It wasn't me, it was the Lord. And you feel like saying, who was it who played the wrong note? (laughs) Not that I heard any wrong notes, okay? Or or when they say, it wasn't me, it was the Lord, you you might say, it's good, but the Lord. I mean, it was good, but not that good, you know. Uh, But but that, you'll find people will say that. They'll say, oh, it wasn't me. And and then effectively they're saying like, "Drain, drain pipes only, blessed master, but with all your power flowing through us. Because we're nothing. We're just a drain pipe. I didn't do it. Jesus did it. It's not true. You did it. Thank you. Thank you for all the practice, all the hours. Thank you for practicing with the band. Thank you for working. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. See, it's not true to say, I didn't do it. You did it. Now, you put that thing together with, I know when I used to preach, perhaps in more formal churches, there would be a prayer meeting before the meeting, and uh, often the deacons would stand around and pray a, a kind of famous prayer. And a friend of mine said to me, if they pray that prayer over me again, he said, I'm going to go into the pulpit. Because they would pray this, Oh Lord, hide the preacher this morning. We would see Jesus. I mean, that prayer, you hear it again and again in certain circles. And he said, if they pray that over me again, he said, I'm going in, I'm going to stand in the pulpit and say, let us pray. When they close their eyes, I'm going underneath. He said, said, let's see how they get on without me. He said, and, and some of those wonderful big old wooden pulpits, it's actually carved into the wood. It says, Sir we would see Jesus, which is wonderful but weird. <laughs> because, because, well, there's a preacher here. And we understand what they mean, but the danger is when you start putting these things together. It wasn't me, it was the Lord. We don't want to see you, we want to see Jesus. So we don't count. The most modern one I've heard is God is looking for a faceless army. I've heard that Quite recently, in charismatic so God wants a faceless army. God wants a faceless army. Okay. What is he saying? What is that saying? What it's saying is this. God wants and prizes anonymity. 
He wants facelessness. Does he? Is that what the Bible teaches? That God wants a faceless army? He doesn't want any personalities. He just wants to obliterate you. Well, if that's so, why are all these names in here? Why do you get, I mean, pages, you can open Bible, many, many places, and it's just a page of names. You're getting David's mighty men. And it doesn't say, they were a faceless army. It says, this guy, he took up 300 in a field. This guy, he jumped down in the snow and killed a lion. This guy was over this, this was over the 30. These were the, and I think, every one of them, name, 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 name. But God wants a faceless army. What's all these names doing in the Bible? And I can't pronounce any of them. Hallelujah. He wants to, let's rip those pages out. Because they're very embarrassing for preachers. You have to try and, and God's indifferent. He wants faceless. No, he doesn't. He really doesn't. It's a lie. It's wrong. And it's teaching you not to honor the Bible. It's teaching you to honor some silly sentimental concept. And if you put it together, it wasn't me, it was the Lord, hide the preacher, faceless army. You gradually pick up these fragments and you get to the idea, well, it's God who does it. I'm irrelevant, which is just not biblical. You find the story that says about Nehemiah and these guys working on the wall. And it names these people. And it says they worked hard. And it says these guys didn't put their arm to it. They didn't go for it. You think, well, God notices. Oh, yeah, God notices. It's not all God doing it all. It's not, we built that wall. I wasn't me, it was the Lord. No, no, no. You did it. Well done. And I'll reward you. See, then you get the prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola who founded the Jesuit movement and gave the church a famous prayer, which is this. We do these things, Lord, not looking for any reward, save that of knowing we do your will. That's a famous prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola. We do these things not looking for any reward, save that of knowing we do your will. Now, that's a beautiful, holy kind of thing to say, but it's not what the Bible says. It's suggesting somehow the concept of reward, there's something wrong with it. That's what it suggests, really. It's like Jesus is saying, here it is, Revelation 22. Jesus, I am coming. My reward is with me. I'm going to render it. Which of us is going to say, oh, Jesus, Jesus, just a minute. Just, uh, I mean, reward. I mean, Jesus, looking for reward. I mean, just sit down, Jesus. We'll explain it to you. It's... um, (laughs) It's really a funny ethic. You know, look, you do it looking for a reward. I mean, Jesus, I mean, if Jesus says, I'm coming, my rewards are with me. And we're saying, we're not looking for rewards. Guess who got it wrong? See, Jesus, I'm coming. I want to give my rewards. So Paul says this, as you read this passage, he said, you know, we'll be tested by fire. You're going to find out, is it silver? Is it gold? Why do you look after those kids? Someone's got to look after them. I hate the smelly things. (laughs) But someone, I'm there every week. You can count on me. That's really going to be impressive, eh? Notice how Paul responds. Chapter 4, he says in verse 3, if you had time, this is worth looking at nearly every phrase. We haven't got time, but just note them. Chapter 4, verse 3. He says... To me, it's a very small thing that I might be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. 
For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, yet I am not by that acquitted. He said, I'm, as far as I know, I'm doing okay, but even, even my own self-assessment, mm, I can't count on it, because I might have got it wrong. Then he says this, the one who examines me is the Lord. Then verse 5 is the big one, I think. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait till the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. It's an amazing verse. He's saying it's going to be this fire test. I'm not really interested in what you think. Paul is getting challenged by the Corinthians. They're doubting his motives. He said, I don't really care what you think of me. What your, your assessment isn't it? He said, even my own assessment of myself. I think I'm doing all right, but that's not the final word on the subject. He said, the reality is, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. He's kind of, going to disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then, then, praise comes from God. It's like, Terry, why did you go to St. Louis? October 2011. Why did you go? What was that about? Like flying around? Like standing on platforms? See, God will search out our motives. And we may say, well, as far as I know, but the fire test is going to be very searching. Then we'll find out. And Paul says, as far as I know, but the reality is, I really want to live in the fear of God, Paul is saying. Because one day, we all stand before God. So, beloved, I don't want to get involved in dead works. I don't want to get involved in external. You've got to keep it going because what if you don't? And what will they think of you? And someone has to do it. And it won't stand up. It really won't. And so I want to serve the living God because one day we give account for what we did. So this is kind of a grace sets us free. People talk about cheap grace. Oh, you just do anything. No, no, that's that. No, no, no. You're set free so that you can serve the living God. But not out of guilt. Guilt's gone. Hallelujah. So we're free to serve Him joyfully. And I want to press into that as we come to the last section of what I'm saying to you tonight. We have our conscience cleansed. We're not working to justify ourselves. Jesus has already justified us. Hallelujah. As we've said before, we're not trying to impress him. Someone impressed him on our behalf. We're accepted, thoroughly accepted. Having been thoroughly accepted, he says, now I've got some things I want you to do. I think it was Watchman Nee who said, it's like he gave you a pure white garment and then he gave you a needle and a golden thread and said, now I want you to embroider in there the things I'm giving you to do. We have the privilege of serving. So what does it look like to serve the living God. Let's just look at a few headlines as we close here tonight. First of all, serving the living God is actually working with God and demonstrating what God is like. So it says in Mark 16, 20, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with the signs that followed. Again, it says, he who worked mightily through Peter to the Jews worked powerfully through Paul to the Gentiles. 
What is that telling me? It's telling me when you're doing what you're meant to be doing, you'll find God's energy is there. You'll find there's a power, there's an enabling. There's something that says God is in this. We're not just keeping the wheels turning. There is a sense in which God is manifested when we're doing the thing that God has told us to do. He has anointed us to do different things. In the body, there are many different gifts. For us, it's to find the thing that we're meant to do. So it's work that shows his power. Secondly, it's work that shows the diversity that is in the kingdom. It's doing what he's called us to do. Jesus said in John 17, I have glorified you on the earth. Then this next line is this. I have done the work you gave me to do. So I'd love to glorify God on the earth. I, I wish I was Billy Graham. I wish I was Catherine Kuhlman. Then I could really, no, no, this is the line. I've done the work you gave me to do. It says that we're his workmanship created in Christ for works he prepared beforehand for us. There are works for us that are, we are meant to do. We're qualified for, we're chosen to do. And for us, Paul said, I want to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of me. God laid hold of Paul. God gave Paul significance. He said, you're a chosen instrument. I've chosen you. Paul said, I want to lay hold of it. I, I, have, a, I have reason for being on the earth. I've got something that gives my life meaning, dignity, destiny. I want to get hold of what God got hold of me for. That's the desire. So, so we're not just doing the stuff. We're, we're saying, Lord, what is it you have for me to do? It says about David, his testimony when he died. It says, David fell asleep having fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation. What a testimony. What a thing to have on your gravestone. Eh? He did what God... In fact, God said this of David. I have found David, a man who will do all my will. That's God's perspective. It's almost like, I found one at last who'll do all my will. Because living works get the will of God done. Dead works just get the religion moving. Keep the machinery. Keeps on putting the meat in the oven. Living works get the will of God done. With all its diversity, all its uniqueness, we've done the thing God chose us to do. Now, how do you find what you're meant to do? Well, I believe that the Christian life is really worked out in the church. Isolated Christian life is not a biblical concept, really. We work out our life in the fellowship of the body of Christ. And when you first get saved, to be honest, you don't know what your gift is. And so you just serve. You just get in through love, serve one another. Just get in. Just be a jack of all trades. But as you grow, you begin to find what you're particularly gifted at. We have a number of little grandchildren and uh, no little babies around, expecting another one any time. It's so lovely, isn't it, little babies? It's funny when sometimes they're, they're lying back in the cot, and as they're lying there, they see their own hand. Have you seen that? They can't see this hand. It's hilarious. They don't realize it kind of belongs to them. Oh. And little babies haven't got a clue about their bodies. You know, they think toes are for sucking. They think knees are for walking on. Because uh, they don't know. They don't understand what the members are for. And then gradually, oh no, feet are for walking on. It's just growing up. 
and you find what the bits are for. So I'm not saying, you know, find the will of God. Go and hand, find what you exist for. Chop, go and wait on God somewhere. No, 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 hand, serve the body. You'll find what you're good at as you serve the body. You find, oh, hands are good for scratching, you know, good for doing up buttons. They, they, you've, by serving, in serving, you begin to find where your skill lies, where you feel gifted, comfortable. And in a very good functioning body, you get encouragements. You get, you know, when you do that, you light up a meeting. When you do that, everybody gets so blessed. And also you'll get, uh, when you do that, hey, you wreck the meeting. Or maybe, you know, you really prophesied so well, but you just went on a little bit after. You just kind of kept going. Um, you know, that, you started with a kernel of something really good, but you should have just stopped then. Now, if you're really in a good fellowship, you say, thank you, I'll really try and listen. If you're not, you say, how dare you? I am a prophet. I will take my prophecy somewhere else. <laughs> and you don't grow at all. You don't, you don't advance. In a loving fellowship, you're encouraged, you're exhorted, you're corrected, you're inspired, you're thanked. It's just beautiful. And we begin to find where the skills are. He ascended on high. He gave all sorts of different gifts. It says in 1 Peter, as each one has received a special gift, employ it as good stewards of God's manifold, could be translated multicolored grace. It's multicolored grace. One of the privileges of our day and generation is you can see these magnificent nature things on television where cameras go deep underwater and places where our forefathers never had the privilege of seeing. And we can see, them. boy, I mean, why did God make a fish that looked like that? I mean, it's weird. That is strange. That is amazing. And God's creation in all its diversity, even since we've been here, the colors in the leaves uh, and your magnificent fall in the States, the colors. I mean, God has made everything beautiful. It is a tragedy that people say, I don't go to church because it's so boring. It's so gray. The church is the pinnacle of God's creative skill. It's the only thing that's going to last into eternity. When he wraps everything up, it says he's going to wrap it up. The only thing that will live on, the only thing that gives meaning to this earth being here is the church. Everything else is gone. That's the biggest thing, the most wonderful thing. So it's, it's, as I say, it's the pinnacle of his creative skill. And it's for us to see, where do I fit? What do I do? And we grow into that more and more as we grow as Christians. We don't know it from the beginning, but we grow into what God has for us. So it's very diverse and full of God's purpose. Also, it's motivated by love, not by conscience. See, sometimes you could be in a, maybe a small group or in a church and you think, oh dear, Mrs. Jones is in hospital. Uh, maybe I ought to go and see her. I think whenever you hear that little phrase, I ought to, we ought to have a ringing bell. It goes, ring, ring. Like, wake up. You said, ought to, ought to. What do you mean, ought to? Just ask yourself, why am I saying I ought to? What am I thinking? And we may step back and say, Lord, Mrs. Jones is in hospital. She's got an operation tomorrow. And he may say, look, you haven't done this yet. You've got to do that as well. Come on, don't forget. Look, 
Don't even think about it. You don't have to go. Be free. Or it may be. You say, oh God, Mrs. Jones is in the hospital. Uh, I ought to go. And God says to you, you don't even care about Mrs. Jones. All you care about is she'll be out next week and she's going to say, you didn't come and see me. You don't care about her. You care about what she thinks about you. And you begin to think, why do I do these things? And it may be you have to stand back and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. It may be he'll say to you, she's never had surgery before. She's alone. I really want to express my love to her. And I'm really looking for someone who can take my love to her there. And you say, Lord, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. And you ask God to give you mercy. Then you ask God, bless her. Then you go. Now outwardly, you can go. And I mean, it doesn't look any different to the nurse as you come in with your grapes, you know. You see Mrs. Jones and you're sitting there saying, hello, Mrs. Jones, how are you? Eat her grapes, you know. And then, <laughs> and then oh, the bell. Oh, the ring, oh, it's the end of the visiting. Oh, nicely, goodbye. And Mrs. Jones is sitting there thinking, what was that all about? She ate the grapes anyway, you know. And, or, or you really go because you, you want to shed the love of God abroad. And outwardly, it looks the same thing. Somebody came in, somebody went out. But from God's point of view, it's completely different. The angels are looking on. They're so bored. They think, oh boy, that's going up in smoke soon. That's a waste of time. <laughs> or, or they celebrate, here's the kingdom of love. See, just doing it isn't going to fulfill God's purpose. It is... Did we do it with love? Did we do it with faith? Was it a living thing? Was it for the Lord? Or were we just keeping it going? And grace, beloved, should set us free from all that externalism. And, and when we... See, sometimes you go to a church and there's somebody over there, he's really got grace, and he's, she's got it, and that couple, but they're kind of stars against the grim. But when a whole church has been taught about grace... And it's really in the warp and woof of church life. And no one's doing stuff out of guilt. But we want to please the Lord. And we're doing it from joy and motivation. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. We, we see a whole people coming alive for him. It's for you, Jesus. Freely, for you. Thank you. You justified us freely as a gift. Thank you. We don't have to do anything to impress you. Thank you. That's all over. We're right with you. And I love to serve you. What have you got for me? That's the attitude God wants. Let me just close with this. It says that the, there were two souls in the Bible. The soul of the Old Testament, one of the last things he ever says is this, I have played the fool. The old King James says, I have erred exceedingly. He's looking back at his life, and King Saul is one of the most tragic figures in the Bible. At the end of the whole thing, he says, I'm a waste of time. It's a bit like Shakespeare, Richard II, when the end of his story says, uh, I have wasted time, he's in prison, now does time waste me? That's the summing up of my life, I wasted it. Then you get the soul of the New Testament. And the soul of the New Testament says, I have run the race. I have fought the fight. Henceforth there's laid up for me a crown. Oh, you're thinking about it? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. See, that's a New Testament attitude. There's laid up for me a crown. And Paul, Paul's looking to that. Hebrews 11 
So, so many of them, they did this and this looking for the reward. Even Jesus dying on a cross, it wasn't like Mahatma Gandhi, just non-retaliation. No, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He was looking forward. He had goal and purpose and meaning. Beloved, the grace of God has set us free from guilt and shame and hell. It's given us righteousness. It's given us back our lives. We can serve him. We can glorify him. So grace isn't there to just make us be lazy. Grace sets us free from drivenness and guilt and shame and oppressing. It frees you. But it also invites you. Come on, now let's serve him with all our hearts. Let's be zealous for God. I don't find our grace churches in New Frontiers with our grace emphasis is producing laziness. It's producing zeal and church planting and discipleship and going. But without that guilt, without that heaviness, without that kind of, oh God, I'm so sorry, I'm such a miserable sinner. No, God has taught us to breathe the fresh air of acceptance and grace. Put joy in our hearts, giving us desire to serve him and glorify him. So let's repent from dead works. Let's make sure our conscience is cleansed. Maybe some of us need to step back and say, is this what I'm meant to be doing? Maybe you need to have the courage to say, look, I'm not sure this is what I'm supposed to do, actually. Maybe this is more what I'm meant to do. Maybe some of us need to be saying, I don't know if I'm doing anything. Because, well, it's not me, it's the Lord. And he he's only wants a faceless army anyway. I don't even count. I don't matter. Just faceless. Just sit here. God's not interested. No, that's just not what the Bible says. God is very interested. He loves you. He's got ambition. He's got more ambition for you than you have for yourself. I've learned that over years. God has got more ambition for me than I ever brought to the table. He's got ambition for you. He wants to glorify his name in you and through you. Let's respond to him. Let's pray. We'll sing afterwards if a musician would come up. Lord Jesus, I just pray right now, Lord, for every one of us here. I do pray that grace will set us free. That all we've been teaching these three nights will be so liberating. That we're not under law. We're not married to that old driver husband. Made us always feel guilty. We thank you once for all we've died to him. Now we're married to Jesus with all his gentle invitation. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Come to me. I'll make you fruitful. Stay in me and I in you. You'll bear so much fruit. Jesus, thank you for this wonderful new covenant. So much better. Thank you that you said the old one is obsolete. Hallelujah. We thank you we don't go back to the obsolete covenant. We live in the new covenant. We thank you too. You've cut us loose from slavery to sin. You brought us right out of Egypt. We thank you none of Egypt's army got through. We thank you we've escaped. We're free. We thank you for freedom. Christ has set us free. Lord, we want to stand in this glorious freedom. And Jesus, we just worship you afresh tonight. Thank you we were co-crucified with you. We were co-buried with you, co-raised with you, 
co-seated with you in the heavenlies, included in all of your wonderful triumph, partner with you in it. We praise you, Jesus. Now, Lord, we just want to surrender ourselves afresh to you. Say, Lord, we want to give our members over to you, living sacrifices, proving what is the will of God, what is good, perfect, acceptable for each one of us, Lord. I pray for this church. I pray, Father, for guests who are with us tonight. I pray for every one of us, Lord, that we might give our bodies happily, gladly, living sacrifices, proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Lord, thank you that we can live a life that you planned for us, that brings you joy. Thank you we can have that testimony. I've glorified you on the earth. I've done the work you gave me to do. I pray, Lord, that we might rise to that with joy. We might discern our role. We might glorify your name. Deliver us from individualism. Help us to do it as a body together. That we might play our part in the body. And that churches might be raised up to your great glory. Lord, please be glorified through our receiving your word and living it out. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.